Rethink Retail, the evolution of retail in today's connected world. Welcome to the Rethink Retail Show, your source for the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. Join host Julia Raymond, Global Director of Research at Valtech, a global digital agency focused on strategy and transformation in retail, as she explores the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. This episode of Rethink Retail, sponsored by Valtech, where experiences are engineered. All right, welcome to the show. Our guest today is Lee Ann Daly. She is the U.S. Chairman for the Talent Business, a global leader in executive search for creative businesses in marketing, advertising, and communication sectors. She's also an active investor and was previously CMO of Fortune 500 companies, including ESPN for over 10 years, Thomson Reuters, and Consulting Chief Marketing Officer at Press Juicery. Leanne, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to have you today. Yeah, I am so interested in your business and how you help uh, to enable companies to modernize their, you know, their marketing stack and make them efficient. And I'm really interested in hearing what kind of questions you have for me today. Absolutely. Uh, I would like to get started. If you could just give us a little bit about your background. I mean, you've worked with some really impressive companies. would like to hear about ESPN and what you did there and, and maybe some more sure. content around press juicery, as I, I know you had yeah. some interesting stories there. Yeah, some probably some rele- relevant um, retail stories there. Um, well, you know, I started off my career in advertising agencies and um, did that for about eight years. And then I left and I started my own company, a production company. And in that, in that capacity, producing radio programming and advertising, which I guess you would call now like a content company. Um, I got to know ESPN and ESPN hired me uh, initially as uh, vice president of advertising and program marketing, which was really a job focused on their TV business, but very quickly because of the moment in time that I got there, um, I launched a magazine. I launched interactive games business. I launched um, uh, fantasy sports. I launched ESPN zones, which were site-based entertainment businesses that kind of tapped into the combined skill set of the Walt Disney Company, which owned ESPN or owns ESPN, and um, and our own sort of knowledge as ESPN about what sports fans love and want. Um, and so that was an amazing experience. It was a huge growth period uh, for the ESPN brand. It was between uh, 97 and 2007. So there was a lot of growth and, and it was before people were cutting cords. So it was a very robust business responsible for a big chunk of the free cash flow into the Walt Disney Company at the time. Um, and then I had two kids <laughs> and I, I looked around, I was, you know, I was on the executive committee of the and I looked around the room and, um, you know, everybody in the room had a wife and I didn't have a wife. I have a wonderful husband, but he is uh, fully employed. So, um, I kind of decided, I thought after almost 10 years, I decided to, um, kind of step back and try to be a stay-at-home mom. Um, I stayed on as an advisor to ESPN because I had so many years of, um, you know, walking the road with my colleagues. And um, in that time, I kind of realized that, like, while I love being with my kids, I'm kind of like a breed of dog that's supposed to work. I'm like a working (laughs) breed. (laughs) 
And um, that, that took a little counseling to get to that, you know, uh, to not sit there and beat myself up saying, why am I not happy being at home with my kids? And in that time period, a really uh, brilliant and well-known uh, recruiter, a guy named Jim Citron from Spencer Stewart, um, asked me to go talk to Tom Gloster and Devin Wenig at Reuters. Um, and I was a journalism major in college. And so I knew what Reuters was. Um, and I really admired how Reuters um, news desk really exists to serve the financial markets in the same way that Bloomberg does. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, what an interesting um, model for neutrality in news, because the markets just want to know what's going on. They don't really care about the spin politically in either direction. Um, and those guys were looking to sort of upgrade their marketing uh, department globally. And so I joined them. Uh, I cut a deal where I didn't have to work five days a week. So I got, you know, Fridays with my kids, which was fantastic. And I joined them. And about three months in, they announced that they're going to merge with Thompson. And um, that was that was an amazing experience, too, because it was merging. It was doing a gigantic merger of, of two powerful media companies. But it was happening right at the very beginning of the world financial market crisis of 2008 and 2009. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. So the wonderful experience was creating a joined-up brand because Thomson and Reuters wanted to rebrand themselves and taking that out into the world in 140 markets in nine different languages. So we launched, and we were, initially when we launched, we were listed on three stock exchanges, and we had to you know, uh, delist in a couple places. And that was, that was a really interesting learning experience. And then um, when all the dust settled around the merger and we had gone around the world sort of telling everybody about, telling everybody in the company about the brand, um, I came back and I ran the markets division uh, marketing, which was, you know, a organized in time zones globally around the world with um, a really strong team of channel marketers um, who reported up to a woman who is now, I think, um, running customer relations for Refinitiv, which is the new company uh, that Thomson Reuters Markets became. Um, you know, all these all these experiences had their own kind of unique learning curve. Let's just say, um, you know, going from consumer-based sports marketing company to a B two B world financial market company for me was a huge leap. Um, I knew I had the fundamental skills of a marketer and a storyteller, which was kind of fundamentally what they didn't have at the time that they brought me in. Um, But then I got to learn the difference between fixed income and foreign exchange, (laughs) which (laughs) sounds sounds like I should have known what that was, but, you know, nobody around me, I, I grew up around doctors not stockbrokers. And um, all my friends when I moved to New York after college were, you know, artists, musicians, um, uh, advertising people, filmmakers, architects. So <laughs> it was a great, it was, that's what I always kind of seek. I'm, I'm constantly seeking a learning curve. That's just me. Yeah, it sounds like it. And, you know, it sounded like that opportunity sort of almost fell in your lap through your network. And it was You jumped on it and then all of a sudden you join and it's in flux and they're merging two huge global companies. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah, it was was really fun. I mean, we we did things like, you know, we worked um, 
with a branding agency, um, Interbrand, to create the joined up Thomson Reuters brand. And the logo was, um, and I think Reuters still uses, Reuters News still uses this logo. It was composed of 108 dots. And when, uh, when our, when our, you know, chief financial officer went on his roadshow to Asia to show the logo off, people kept running up to him and saying, there are 108 dots in that logo. It's so amazing. He came back to me and he's like, did you know there were 108 dots in the logo? And I said, yes, I did. (laughs) We did that on purpose. It's an auspicious number, you know, and it was so interesting how, you know, when you, when you do this job of marketing, and communicating sort of into cultures, across cultures, how you build certain things in and you make a big deal of those things to the audiences that will appreciate them. And you sort of almost, to save yourself the trouble, don't mention it to those audiences that won't get it because they'll think about it too much. And it was so, it was so fantastic to have him run up to me delighted that we had sort of, in his mind, accidentally done something that we did very in- intentionally. So, um, you know, that's what I love about the job of marketing. It's just this opportunity to go deep and you don't have to sell deep always, but when you go deep and you're really thoughtful, you can really do some amazing things to create um, a sincere connection with your internal audience and hopefully also with your you know, customer audience. Yeah. And that's definitely something I'm hearing a lot of retailers talk about today is how do you go deeper with personalization how, what does personalization mean beyond just the buzzword uh, you know how do you connect yeah. with like micro segments um in your audience and there's so much changing that it's hard it's hard to keep up you know um yeah i mean something that comes forward to me when you say that is i, I feel like a lot of companies uh do a perfectly good job of creating the technology stack to uh gain hunches or insights right mm-hmm. but I'm not sure that companies set themselves up to have conversations face-to-face enough. And um, I know that I become aggravated when, um, you know, I'm purchasing a pair of, let's say, work boots for my 14-year-old son because he's obsessed with work gear right now and (laughs) clothes in general. (laughs) Um, The minute I buy those work boots, they keep sending me messages to buy work boots. Um, As opposed to recognizing that there might be a little micro trend happening with this individual customer and having a broader conversation, either face to face or through digital means. And it just seems to me a lot of it is very ham fisted now and that there's an opportunity to make it more subtle and inviting. Yeah. I think that there's a little bit of over automation in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the example that you gave um, when we were talking about Chanel, some work that you guys have recently done, where the technology there is there to enable the human being to have an interaction that is productive and acknowledges the customer, but it also creates an environment in which two humans can have a meaningful conversation. I think that's super powerful. Yes, definitely. With with the Chanel example, what they're doing is, um, I think, next level. They obviously have a high emphasis on luxury with their brand, but to create this experience that is both personalized and has a human touch, um, so it's not just digital, it's the blending of of the two, is really powerful. And I think they've um, seen some really great results so far. 
Yeah, that's great. So tell us a little bit about Press Juicery. Uh, you said you were the consulting yeah. chief marketing officer for them. Tell us a little bit about kind of the go-to-market strategy or what your responsibility was um, when you came in to, to help them leverage their marketing and define yeah. their customers. Well, Press Juicery is a Southern California-based business. They make all of their juice um, in the central coast of California using um, super, like just right out of the ground, fresh uh, fruits and vegetables. Um, And they had grown like crazy on the West Coast. Um, They were operating in all up and down the coast of California, uh, Washington State, uh, Hawaii, and they had launched in um, Massachusetts. They, we were launching in Massachusetts, New York, and um, they they had really done an amazing job of creating uh, an almost like an influencer brand unto itself. Like they had created a a, a, a blog called the Chalkboard Mag, uh, Chalkboard Magazine, which uh, you know stands on its own as a media asset, actually, in terms of creating a conversation around uh, wellness, fitness, um, uh, new modes of, of uh, taking care of your body and your mind and your spirit and your diet and your exercise. I mean, they, they really did an incredible job of kind of putting the right things in place to continuously have a conversation with their consumer um, but the technology underlying, you know, their uh, point of sale uh, and the gathering of information and data off their website, and even the SKUs that they could sell off their website, um, just wasn't where it needed to be to be as flexible and useful to their consumer, and also to drive uh, a simple path to uh, database customer insight and. In addition, um, their, their, the way that they did their marketing was, um, you know, they didn't do enough video. They, like, it's, it runs the gamut from, like, the um, enterprise data warehouse issues that needed to be <laughs> upgraded all the way over to just the basic skill sets of the individuals um, conducting the sort of content of their marketing. And they... They had amazing relationships, and they did an excellent job of leveraging those relationships. And the people who founded the company are creatively brilliant people. Um, so what what my job was to do there really was to focus them on, you know, how do you take what I'll sort of uh, sort of overstate as an enterprise data warehouse and improve it so that it isn't an individual doing pivot tables. until 10 at night, every (laughs) night, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's something that automatically reveals itself even at the retail point, you know, so each individual manager can look at it and identify local advertising and marketing opportunities or ways of uh, bundling things to sell them uh, at a higher ticket uh, per transaction kind of, kind of thing. And, you know, we, we, went in there and um, did a, a bunch of research and talked to a bunch of providers and ended up uh, doing an abbreviated Adobe marketing cloud process. And, and you know, 
basically my job was to find the people who could uh, enable that and hire them. And I hired somebody who was uh, an excellent uh, digital marketer from um, T-Mobile. And, and then uh, getting the staff internally to learn how to do, uh, to learn how to use those tools, but also to learn how to uh, do stop motion animation for some of the communications that they wanted to do, to do things that would on balance um, improve their ability to get clicked through for uh, promotional offers on social media and as well as on email because email was like one of the most powerful forms of marketing for them. And, you know, email anyway is an exciting place to do well because you're building on your own land. You know, you don't really have to do anything other than uh, continue a, a relevant conversation. And if it is a high-performing medium for you, it can, it can be easily 80% of how you uh, engage your consumer. Totally. And really interesting that you talked about the need for um, a company like Press Juicery that already has a really strong and dedicated, it sounds like, consumer following. And then through their social media, which is then nurtured through the blog and the content on the blog posts, and that they were able to bring in this technology that enables people to have localized, it sounds like, marketing campaigns. Um, we've yeah. been hearing a lot about the importance for that, but I, I, it must be difficult to find people that have the skills in that area, like the chief marketing officers or C-level execs that you help place. I mean, what are the skills that they need to add to their resume today if you're a CMO looking to work with a, a retail yeah. brand? Well, I mean, I would, I would say CMO and even at a level below that, because, you know, if you, if you read... Uh, if you read the books that are coming out, you know, the, and, and you read articles, it's, you know, predicting again for the umpteenth time, the death of the CMO. <laughs> right. um, so I'm going to, I'm going to address this to let's just call it um, people who are in charge of operating marketing and companies at the highest level, whatever mm-hmm. that means. Right. Um, and I, I think that, I think that um, really understanding how all the, the, the kind of mission-critical tools of marketing work uh, is, is kind of like a very basic thing to say, but I, but I think it's, it's really important to understand um, what basic tools you need and at what level do you need those tools? Because, you know, honestly, I think that um, some companies can go a very long time using uh, basic MailChimp or constant contact email platforms, and they're fine. Um, sometimes you need a, a higher grade tool, but you do need tools and you need to be able to evaluate what, what the differences are between the tools and you need to be able to implement those tools so that you can, um, you know, do that really inexpensive, let's call it marketing, um, because a lot of times, I mean, like I've, I've invested in a lot of startups. So I've, and I, and I, of course, as you know, I uh, mentioned at the top, it worked in Fortune 500 companies. So like I've had every budget from nothing to, you know, a hundred million dollars. I've never worked at a telecom, so I haven't had a billion dollar budget, but, you know, I've, I've had a lot, many millions of dollars to work with. So 
you know, I've, I've kind of seen everything. And some of my investments, frankly, were to inoculate myself against irrelevance because I invested in companies that were serving, you know, the marketing community with, with new marketing technology. So I think that understanding the tools, understanding how to evaluate the horse for the course for your marketing, in other words, figuring out what you need in order to be successful and recognizing that sometimes, particularly with a company that's, let's say, five years old that has not uh, been acquired already, figuring out what what's going to last three years, what's going to last five years, and how much will your head of finance tolerate the investment in the five-year solution? Um, I think that being able to have those conversations and being really clear within yourself, even if you're a creative marketer, forcing yourself to become clear around this stuff is really important Um, because particularly for the creative marketer, it enables them to have the tools that they need to operate like a publisher. So you need to understand how the email marketing uh, tools work and which ones are the correct ones for your business. You need to um, become uh, a a strong um, kind of operator around the social platforms and the influencer platforms that are relevant to you. And sometimes they're not relevant at all. Sometimes you need to cultivate your own internal influencers and you have to figure that out. Um, And then finally, I think you need to be really good at what I'll call business development. But what really is creative collaborations that have legs. So in other words, figuring out who you want to play with and figuring out how to get the deals that you make with the people you want to play with out of the lawyer's office and into the long-term strategic thinking office of your business so that you can be successful with partners over time. Because what I've noticed a lot of times is people get really chuffed about doing, you know, a collaboration, you know, and by this, I mean, like, you know, Supreme Times Adidas, those kinds of elaborate uh, collaborations. And they, they think in terms of that one moment in time. And I think it's really important to, with every collaboration, figure out how do we make this um, last three to five years? How do we take our culture and the culture of our partner in this collaboration and the cultures of our various consumers and dream collectively about what we can talk about and what we can do together to make life more interesting or to educate our consumer or to just delight them in some way. And um, I feel like this is an important skill in marketing because going back to my first statement, which is Marketers are like publishers now. Companies, every company is a publisher by virtue of the nature of social media and the digital platforms that we can build as marketers. So, you know, your website, any blogs that you have, um, any social accounts that you run um, are all opportunities to behave and think like a news generating publisher. And it doesn't mean you have to be generating breaking news. But it does mean that you have an opportunity to have a conversation. And that conversation can be driven by the culture that you want to operate in. It can be driven to some degree by the insight that you garner from your enterprise data warehouse. Um, But it's it's an incredible moment in time um, to create 
meaningful conversations with the consumer and to collaborate in a in a lively and fun way over time with partners. Yeah, and it, I love everything you just said. It makes total sense um, to cr- look at things from at least the the mid to long term and not, I guess, chase the shiny objects as we see a lot of brands do. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough dilemma for marketers, though, because most marketers, particularly retail marketers, are sitting around the table every week looking at the numbers at retail um, and having, um, you know, meetings with their store managers or their regional managers or, or whatever, and everybody's wringing their hands that they don't have data to try to figure out what to do. So data is important. And um, having people around who can um, create content that fuels conversation is also a really important component. Yeah, so in investing heavily in content strategy now that marketers have taken on that role of also being a publisher. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's tricky for me to call it strategy, you know, because it is, it's great to have a strategy. It's like, I, I think that what you do is you plan out a strategy and then you gather together every two weeks to have conversations around topical subjects that might intersect with your brand, your product, and make sure that you don't get too stuck in the plan. You know, you have to be able to be nimble and shift based on what's going on in the world. Yes, exactly. And while still trying, staying true to your brand, um, which is yeah. probably the most challenging part to balance the two. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, I when I was at ESPN, one of the things I always used to say is a brand is a brand is a relationship um, that you conduct every single day with your customers. Um, it's a conversation, and you know your brand is really doesn't belong to you. It belongs to every single individual who engages with your customer, and you know you 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 want to keep. Um, reminding everybody in the company that um, they, they need to they need to every single day ask themselves, why do I deserve to exist in the life of this person who's exchanging their money for whatever it is I have to give them or sell them or you know teach them or whatever? And um, you know I think it's I think it's a really important thing that people uh, in the marketing role and in, in the operating role to recognize that you need to figure out a way to put that responsibility in the hands as far into the organization as you can so that you can have as much love as possible flowing <laughs> between <laughs> the customer and, and the brand. Because the brand is like, it's like, it's an atomized thing. It's, it's this, this far-flung experience of the relationship that you have uh, between the customer and whoever's representing the company. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I, I love how you said um, that a brand is a relationship because I don't know if that's always been the sentiment, but definitely, I don't know if you, what would you say over the past decade or so, it's just becoming more and more true as people become less brand loyal. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me at ESPN, it was very clear that um, the level of passion that people felt towards ESPN because it was tied up in sports, right? So like the subject matter is an inherently passionate place, right? Um, 
what you what you realize is that um, particularly as you grow, because I was there at a very very rapid growth period where there was a lot of concern, like is this on brand? It was always the question to me, and I would always say. You know, if it's something that you feel like you could talk to a friend about at a cocktail party and they would nod their head and say, yeah, that's cool, then it's probably on brand. But if it's if it's like ESPN, the toothpaste, <laughs> you're like a little embarrassed to talk about it. So like use that as your guide. You know, don't come to me with ESPN, the tennis shoe. I'm not going to probably approve <laughs> of it as a head of marketing here because it fundamentally is is not of service to the fan. I mean, the, the, the beautiful statement at ESPN was ESPN is not the world's biggest sports network. It's the world's biggest fan. And we exist solely to serve other fans where they watch, play, debate, read about, talk about sports. That idea of being of service and having, having earned the right to exist doing what you do um, is a really important component of being a good marketer and being a good company and brand. It's like asking yourself, what is my humble mission? Why do I deserve to exist? And if you do that, and if you can step into that and live into it as much as possible, um, you're in a good place. You, You will, you know, you may have missteps here and there, but you'll have more forgiveness from your audience. And You'll, you'll start, I mean, especially at ESPN, we started to really sense when we needed to have a conversation about something with our consumer. And it was, it was an incredible experience because we wouldn't always get everything right on the programming front, but we had a lot of latitude and forgiveness because of just the ongoing sort of experimentation and conversation that we were having across the board. And, you know, also, this is an interesting connection, and it was very true in my time at ESPN. I felt like marketing's role at ESPN was to make people like us and want to spend time with us because that was our business. At the time, ratings were our business, and ratings are made up of the number of people watching and the amount of minutes they're watching. Mm-hmm. And so this basic formula of, is what I'm doing going to make you like me and want to spend time with me? It's really durable across almost every industry as an idea. So, um, you know, that was, that was it. That was it for me. And um, it, was, it was a very powerful thing to go into, you know, strategic sourcing at the Walt Disney Company and say, um, how does this thing that you're pushing us to, this business that you're pushing us to extend our brand into, how does it serve the sports fan? And if they couldn't articulate it, it wasn't business we were going to go into. Right. Pretty powerful. Yeah. Totally powerful. And I love the stories that, that you use to support that because um, marketing is saying spend time with us. And the challenge is, I think, to cut through the clutter and create resonance with the audiences through your content, through your people. And like yeah. you said, create conversations. Yeah. I mean, another piece that I was, I'm, I don't mean to go over all my mantras at ESPN, but another mantra which is very relevant is marketing is programming and programming is marketing. <laughs> and uh, fundamentally, that was true at ESPN. This is Sports Center with a campaign that um, was uh, cultivated and it's still running actually in my time at ESPN. Um, and it's still on the air today. It's been running for 20 years. Um, and 
the value of SportsCenter, aside from the fact that it's funny and entertaining and topical, is that it keeps people from tuning out of ESPN. People tended not to tune out when a SportsCenter spot would come on. And so they stuck around and watched the next commercial in the, in the pod, you know? So that idea that something that was a marketing unit that was created by the marketing department was compelling enough to have the audience behave as if it was programming is a pretty, it's a pretty cool thing. And it, it fundamentally reflects what great marketers are doing today. They're trying to connect on that, on that same level. And we were just doing it all the time at ESPN because it was part of what I believed um, kept people watching the network. And I had research to back that up from um, Artie Volgren, who was a brilliant um, head of research at ESPN. He proved that out for me, so I got cover to continue doing it. And it wasn't just cover, it was the truth. Yeah. And it's, it's still on today and has a huge following. Yep. So yeah, yep. that speaks to its success. Excellent. Well, I think we covered a lot of, of different areas, um, but I really liked what you said about branding. I think that's the big takeaway from from our discussion today is about how brands can create a discussion and uh, work with marketing and how to think about marketing, really. So I think that's all super yeah. relevant to retailers. Yeah, yeah. And it's more of a conversation than a discussion, actually. It's, it's a back and forth. Because discussion is sounds so formal. And I mean, one of the things we talked about was like, we're like your buddy who you talk sports with over beers, plural. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you know, like uh, not to encourage drinking or anything, but, you know, this idea of like, it is, it is a much more face-to-face on the ground relationship conversation versus, you know, we are the worldwide leader in sports and you are our subject. It's like, no, we're friends. We're, we're fellow sports fans. So we get it, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Cause like, if we talk specifically about retailers, I know some of the ways they're getting creative is like with the pop-ups, like with Supreme. Um, but sometimes I was talking to some people at NRF, which is the, the retail's big show in New York. And, um, they were saying, you know, sometimes you go and the pop-up, it just isn't executed on brand. And then it just really changes the experience for someone, especially for these digital first brands that come online as like Instagram stores. And then they start having pop-ups, but it kind of flops because it just doesn't match the expectations. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that the best pop-ups are ones where you have an individual who has a budget that's a decent budget, (laughs) Um, not just, not just the real estate costs, but the actual dressing of the space. And that individual is, is given the ability to create something that is a sincere expression of the brand. And if you don't have that, you're not going to get a good outcome. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, Press Juicery, the chalkboard did pop-ups inside Press Juicery stores. Oh, wow. Okay. And they were beautiful. And they were beautiful because Suzanne, um, Suzanne Hall, who is the editor-in-chief of the chalkboard, it was her responsibility. It was not my responsibility. It was her responsibility. And she wanted it to be amazing. And you need to find that person. You have to 
find that person and you need to not second guess that person because all great creative ideas need that kind of custody. And um, I think all too often we have the death of a thousand folks or we have underfunding. You know what I mean? Um, you know, too many people, too many cooks in the kitchen is the death of a thousand folks and um, not funding things properly. Just don't do it. You know, just don't do it if you're not going to fund it. Right. So fund it correctly, find the right person and give yeah. them full discretion or at least yeah. most of the discretion of their super creative type that can execute. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have them there to do something you can't do. So, you know, stop bringing your girlfriend in to judge everything that person's doing or your boyfriend or whoever. Just let them do their job. If you trust them, if you know that over and over again they've delivered or you see their portfolio of work if you hire them from the outside. You got to have, you know, you got to be careful about hiring the person, but you also have to um, let them do their job. I think mm-hmm. that's true for a lot of creative uh, activities that, you know, companies hire and spend all this money and then they, they basically negate what the person brings to their company. Um, I mean, I have not, I've, I've experienced people being distressed that they're not getting good outcomes from creative resources and probably 90% of the time, the problem is they have not permitted those creative outcomes. <laughs> right. Good ones. They're getting that in happens, their own way. You know? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. That makes total sense. And it's so important for creativity today, especially with everything being Instagrammable and with social media. So. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for your time. I know that you're a super busy person and um, obviously you have a lot going on all the time. I know you run your own podcast, so um, just super thankful that you were able to get on with us today and I will, uh, yeah, we'll have to stay in touch. Okay, beautiful. Take care. Awesome. Thanks so much, Leanne. Bye-bye. Our listeners can hear more from Leanne as she hosts the podcast, Say It Forward, where you hear inspiring interviews revealing life stories told with the heart and from the heart. Say It Forward is available on iTunes. You've been listening to Rethink Retail. For all the latest news on commerce and trends, join the discussion. Rethink.industries slash retail.